You're listening to Christ is King, all of Him in all of life, from Rivertown Church in Brattleboro, Vermont. This podcast is part of our ongoing mission to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. For more information, visit rivertownchurch.org. May the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Word. This morning we're preaching, continuing in our Christ is King series, but specifically over the section of Christ is King over the church. And Ben started us off with that section last week uh, with he's the king over the church's worship. Seeing him for who he is, truly as he is, and walking in fear and love before him. Um, And this week we're looking at the church as as those who bear witness to Christ in the world. And so we'll be looking at Luke, the gospel according to Luke, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. This topic is near and dear to me because of a burden the Lord put on my heart years ago. Um, As I truly began to follow Jesus as a young man, I was exposed to the gospel and to churchianity from a young age because of where I grew up, the Bible Belt. Everyone thinks they're a Christian in the Bible Belt, but once you actually read the Bible, you realize most people don't know what they're talking about. And as a young man, I was 18, and I began taking very serious what it means to follow Jesus and to read his word. And I realized that if this is true, then everything changes. And as I gave myself while in college to studying the scriptures and to... um, reading as much as I could of various sources to inform me. I mean, I was in many ways self-discipling. I took a course that was not a part of my school. It was a, a church was offering it uh, called Perspectives. And in Perspectives, you learn a lot of things um, regarding the Great Commission and a lot of terms from what scholars would call missiology, the study of mission. Um, and we, you know, you learn about the 1040 window, which is a Uh, an area of the world that has the least amount of gospel witness. And so all those things were very formative for me as a young man. And so when we were picking uh, what specific topics we wanted to preach from as we outlined this series, I was naturally drawn to this one. Yet at the time, I did not know the ways in which the Lord was going to stir in my heart in the months leading up to this. Truthfully, I often pick things and then forget about it, and then deal with it when it's time for me to deal with it. And so um, <laughs> I picked this particular subject when we were planning or doing our series planning and, and then forgot. And all the while, the Lord was stirring my heart over very, very specific things that I have the privilege of sharing with you today. And so what does it mean? What does it mean to be a witness? Well, most likely what comes to mind is the judicial sense of the word in which perhaps there's a court hearing and someone is called to bear witness to the events that took place, whether or not to uh, lay a verdict down on the defendant. And that, that does aptly apply you know, to, to what we're looking at today, but it's not the fullest sense of the word. We actually get the word witness from the Greek word martyros, which is where martyr comes from. So martyr literally means witness. Um, It's come to 
kind of denote a much more severe and stronger word when we use it as, it's, as itself. When we say martyr, we usually mean someone who's willing to die for a cause. But in truth, martyr means witness. And we see from the arc of Scripture, from the arc of Scripture that God's people have always served as witnesses to God and his kingdom. In fact, the scriptures are replete with this. You cannot read the Bible and not pick up on this theme, at least not read it intentionally. And so, quickly, I want to give you an example of this from each genre of the scriptures, or each uh, section. We have the law, the writings, the prophets, the gospels, and the epistles. I'm preaching from the gospels, so I'm not going to give you a sample, an example there, but I want you to see, very briefly, in Deuteronomy 28, 9 through 10, okay, from the law, Moses writes, The Lord will establish you as a people, holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. They shall be afraid of you. Israel was called to bear witness to the nations of who God was and what his kingdom looked like. And their nation was to be conformed to the law of God as a witness against surrounding nations that God might be worshipped. That God might be worshipped. This is crucial in understanding the mission of Israel, the people of God. Then in the writings... The psalmist writes in Psalm 98, verses 1 through 3, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Who have they seen? From whom have they seen the salvation of God? From Israel. Israel bears witness, that is the people of God, were bearing witness to the salvation of God to the ends of the earth. And then Isaiah, in prophesying about the redemption to come to Israel, says this in Isaiah 60, verse 3, And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The people of God are so set apart from the world as those who bear witness that the nations are drawn, and they see the brightness of God's people rising, because truly God's people are rising on the wings of their Savior. And then lastly, in Ephesians, this is from the epistles, Paul writes, discussing the salvation that has come to the church and the wisdom and, and all the things given to her, it says this, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So the church, through God's people, the wisdom of God is seen because he is establishing his people and through them he's working his redemption so that powers and principalities, nations and rulers 
See God's people and fear God. And so it, it is part of our birthright as the church to bear witness to God, to, to bear witness to who is king overall. And that's my objective today is to encourage you in the work of bearing witness, to equip you for it, and to charge you to do it. And so let us read our, our main text, and we'll pray, and we'll dive in. Luke 10, starting in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, Go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Let's pray. Father, worthy are you of true worship an exaltation from your people. Lord, I pray that we would exalt your name in our midst, for you truly are exalted over all the earth. Would we exalt in you, knowing that we have everything we need in all that you have provided. And I pray that Christ would be regarded as holy in our hearts this morning. That we would give ourselves to the authority of your word and the moving of your spirit, that we would give ourselves to you as sacrificial worship. You're worthy, and anything less would be treason. I pray that you would speak to us today, that we would leave here <laughs> with questions about what it is you're calling us to do, that we wouldn't so easily put down the text and go on our merry way, but that we would wrestle with it, and in doing so, that we would wrestle with you. Please speak to us this morning, both corporately and individually, that we would be your messengers, your witnesses to the world. Holy are you, King Jesus, and worthy are you of all of our worship. It's in your name I pray and ask all this. Amen. Amen. So we see in verse 1, after this, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others, that, that would be disciples, and sent them on ahead of them. What is the this? What is the this after this? 
Well, we have to backtrack a little bit. Look at uh, chapter 9, starting in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That's the this. That's the this. Jesus' charge to those who wish to follow him and what the nature of discipleship looks like. Many had declared a desire to follow Jesus, but all of them, all of them, at least, well, the three here explained, wanted to follow Jesus on their terms rather than on his. Jesus makes explicit the cost of following him. There must be a singular commitment in following Jesus. A singular commitment. Our discipleship, meaning how we follow and the nature of it, the commitment of it is to him and to his kingdom alone. To him and to his kingdom. And so it was after this, which served as a warning to those who were unwilling to give their all, after this, he appointed 72. Presumably, these 72 were willing. Were willing. They were giving all. He appointed 72 and sent them. And they're the others. They're not the ones that asked for favors. And he sent them ahead of him, ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Hold on to that as we, pre as we continue in the whole sermon. He sent them ahead of of himself because Jesus was making his way to declare the kingdom and he's still doing that every town we enter into every home we go into we'll meet Christ one day and we now are going ahead of him to declare the kingdom all will meet him one day and this is what he says to them as he charges them to go. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with this line. But if it's unfamiliar, what, what, what is the harvest? Well, there are many who have yet to bow their hearts and minds to Jesus as king. Many who have yet to bow their hearts and minds to Jesus as king. This is the harvest. This is the harvest. The harvest is the world in which Jesus is yet to be worshipped as the true king. And the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. We know this here. We feel this. If you truly hunger and thirst for righteousness, you see the world around you. 
It's unavoidable if you have your mind set on the things that are above. Jesus' words here imply that there's a great need for gospel proclamation. That's why he says, pray for laborers to go. Pray for laborers because they are few. There's a great need for gospel proclamation, and, and yet the laborers are few. And because they're few, we must pray, we must pray. But to who? To the Lord of the harvest. And so there's two things to consider with Jesus' charge here. The first is this. The harvest, the harvest belongs to the Lord. In being Lord, God is Lord of all. And if Lord of all, then he's certainly Lord of the harvest. It's his. It belongs to him. Even in their rebellion, these people belong to him. Therefore, there's no need for us to judge our mission, our charge, based on the circumstances or the state of affairs of the harvest. There's no need to judge our mission based on circumstances or state of affairs. We need not be discouraged when it all belongs to him. It all belongs to him because he is the Lord of the harvest. And then two, we must pray for laborers as we ourselves labor. As we ourselves labor. Jesus is commanding his disciples to labor in the harvest as well as pray for laborers. So what does this look like? Well, he specifically commands that we pray for laborers to be sent out. And I believe that this means we are to pray for our sending as well as pray for more to be sent with us. More to be sent with us. So here's my question for you. Do you pray as one who is sent by Christ? Do you? Do you pray as one who is sent by Christ? Do you pray for your own sending out? Have you considered what it looks like to be sent by Christ day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year? Is there a resolve to go where he tells you to go and to do what he tells you to do? And lastly, do you pray for others to join in the work? Do you pray for others to join in the work? If you don't pray for any of these things, some of it could just be ignorance. Some of it could be care. You don't actually care. And today is the day to change that. Today is the day to change that. May we be a people who pray as those who are the sent ones. Who pray for the Lord to continually send us and pray for others to join us in the work. I also want you to note the correlation back to chapter 9, verse 62. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It takes a singular resolve, a singular commitment to follow Jesus and to work the harvest that he sent us to. Do we have it? Do we have it? We must give our all, always. 
Verse 3. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Jesus is warning that the disciples will be prey in a world full of predators. Prey in a world full of predators. See, this is counterintuitive to our instincts. At least it is to mine. When we feel threatened or endangered, we immediately think an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Or we even assume the place of God and say, vengeance is mine. And yet this is not the way of the disciple. We are to be like lambs in the midst of wolves. We are to be lamb-like. In other words, gentle, spotless, pure, blameless. Note, this does not mean weak. You can't do what's expected of us if you're weak. It takes courage. And it is expected that the world, the harvest, will be wolf-like, cruel, ravaging, heartless, brutal, thieving, and murderous. Yet, yet, doing this, that is going out into the world like a lamb in the midst of wolves, doing this is the way of the kingdom of God. And it is the birthright of the church. It is our birthright. As lambs, we courageously proclaim the kingdom of Jesus Christ in the midst of unholy, ravaging wolves. As a birthright, we know it's ours because we have seen prophets of old, saints of old, and our very Lord Jesus do the very same. It's ours. And to shy away from it is to deny the inheritance Jesus has purchased for us. And so, we go with courage, understanding that we are like lambs in the midst of wolves. And all the while, we pray for laborers. We pray for ourselves in the labor, and we pray for laborers. Next, next section, a laborer is worthy of his wages. In parentheses, I have, if you're taking notes, self-sufficiency must die. Self-sufficiency must die. And if you are taking notes, that last section was just called pray for laborers. A laborer is worthy of his wages. And in parentheses, self-sufficiency must die. This is verses 4 through 8. Carry no money bag no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Now, some of these verses, I'm not going to explain. We'll come back to them in the, in the last section. But for a focus, as a focus, this, this section really is killing, putting to death the self-sufficiency that rises from within. 
Jesus says literally, carry nothing with you. Carry nothing with you. But rely on the Lord of the harvest to provide for you from the harvest. How miraculous is that? That the Lord of the harvest will send you to people who will then meet your every need. The path of Christ is not one of self-sufficiency. In fact, self, self, and by extension, self-sufficiency must die for the one following Jesus and bearing witness to his kingdom. Why? There's no room for you and your stuff (laughs) when all of you must be given for all of Christ and his kingdom. There's no room for you. There's no more I. There's only Christ. Now, this is one thing I will explain. I am not implying that the things we use and the things we have, like homes and vehicles and clothes, are inherently bad, and somehow owning something is, is, is disobedience to Christ. But I am saying, and I do want to make this clear, how we value things and how we value our very own life in light of Christ and his kingdom means everything. If I value my life or even my family above Christ and his calling, I don't know him. I don't know him. And I have not seen him. And this is the point he's making. This is why to those three who all said, I'll follow you, I'll do this on these terms. And Jesus says, no, no, no. There's no room for you and your stuff when all of you must be given for all of him. And I'm going to jump to verse 7. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. When a son of peace has received you, when we'll explain more of that son of peace term in a bit. When a son of peace has received you, he will provide for you. He will provide for you. This I have seen proven time and time again personally. It is a beautiful thing when the church lives in harmony with one another and meets needs. And it should be a first source of resources. But time and time again, I have seen lost people have acts of mercy and generosity that there was no explanation for. We even as a church have seen lost people give money to us for th- in amounts that are really surprising for a kingdom that they don't even belong to yet because God is Lord of the harvest. He will meet our every need always, always. And so when a son of peace has received you, he will provide for you. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew calls these sons of peace those who are worthy, those who are worthy. And we'll explain more of that, but I want you to hold on to that. Jesus is not leaving his disciples high and dry here. Uh, He will bless them with everything they need for the task at hand. If he's called you to it, then he'll provide for your every need. It's as simple as that. And maybe that type of sentiment is so overused by the church, it sounds cliche, but it is true. His words are true. 
And so the question is, are we not also supposed to live in such a manner? Going back to those verses from chapter 9. To the one who claimed he would follow Jesus wherever. Listen to this. To the one who claimed Jesus would follow, excuse me, to the one who claimed he would follow Jesus wherever he went, Jesus replied, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, Jesus is saying, will you actually follow me wherever, when wherever leads to nowhere? Will you actually follow me wherever, when wherever leads to nowhere? We must answer that question also. Because we often assume that a life bound to Christ is a life that immediately results in more comforts, more privileges, more joys, less suffering. Or at least he's going to put us on a road that's clear and readily visible. And Jesus says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We must be willing also to go nowhere for the sake of Christ. And I'm using that poetically. I hope you can see that. But when there's no answer or no light at the end of the tunnel yet, are you willing to commit to him and to preach the gospel in season and out, because he's called us to it. Are you willing? For the one who answers yes, there is the blessed assurance that the Lord of the harvest will meet your every need from the harvest. For a laborer is worthy of his wages. A laborer is worthy of his wages. And then we see in verses, both in verses 7 and 8, He says, remain in that same house, eating and drinking what they provide. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. At first, this looks just like another detail to Jesus' charge or perhaps an explanation of the specifics for the sake of these disciples. Maybe he's just giving them details so they don't mess it up. But I, I think there's more to that. Consider this. Consider that he's actually saying, be content. Be content with what you are given. Do not strive for something else. Do not murmur and complain about your circumstances. Do not reject what has been freely given to you, but eat and drink what is set before you. It is a gift from the Lord. Don't be in a season where you're longing just for the next step. This is preaching to myself, and I want you to know that. But until he gives you the word, or until he brings in the prime rib, (laughs) eat the rice and beans he has set before you. Be content, because he has met your every need, and he will continue to do so. He will continue to do so. Because again, the laborer is worthy of his wages. In this next section, we're going to spend the girth of our time in peace or judgment. Peace or judgment. 
we've seen kind of the specifics of our calling in fulfilling Christ's charge to us. But I think we really have to have a grasp and a, and a view to what is not only the specifics of the charge, but the heart of it. What is it that we're proclaiming? What is it that we're charged to be a witness to? We know it's Jesus. We know it's him and his kingdom. But what does that really mean when it lands on the ground? What does that really mean? So we're going to go back to those sons of peace section and then move forward. As we go and proclaim the kingdom, we are also called to do as Jesus did. So as witnesses, we are truly his ambassadors. We must speak and do as he spoke and did. So his message, his message is our message. His deeds are our deeds. And he says this as much. We're not preaching from this, but down, just look down at verse 16. It's kind of a piece of encouragement right before they leave. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. That is the Father. These are Jesus' words to us even. If they've heard you, they've heard me. If they've rejected you, they've rejected me. Let this be an encouragement to you. You are not going anywhere on your own authority. But the authority of Jesus is with you. And that is in that authority we go and we proclaim. And truly, we bear witness to him. And so, there is either peace or judgment. We proclaim either peace or judgment as witnesses of Christ and his kingdom. Look back to verse 5. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. When we first engage people from the harvest, wolves, <laughs> we declare peace. But I don't want you to be confused. It would be injurious to us to assume we know what peace he's talking about based on the language we use every day. No, this peace, it, it's not a peace that causes us to have a blind eye to sin or the pardoning of their guilt even. This peace is rooted in the declaration of Christ and finds its substance in them bowing down to him. That's the peace we proclaim. There is no peace if you don't know Christ. There never will be. There never will be. And so whatever political jargon you see in the world around us, whatever names the, the wolves of the harvest may throw at us, whatever slander they may charge us, because many will think we are hostile. Many will think we're bigots or that we do not know real love. In fact, just recently I was accused of being many things from wolves. And that's okay. I don't have to defend myself 
because their guilt is on their heads. Their guilt is on their heads. But what I do have to be is faithful to Christ. Okay? And that is on all of us. So the peace that we declare is rooted in the declaration of Christ. There is a king, and he will judge the earth. And only those who bow their hearts to him in repentance and belief will be spared. And if you surrender now, he will cover you. He will pardon you of your sins, and you will have life everlasting. That's the message. That's the message. The messenger is heralding the peace that comes to that person when they submit themselves to Christ as king. That's why it says shortly thereafter, and if a son of peace is there, that is one who hears your message and listens to it, your peace will rest upon him. Your peace will rest upon him because you are an ambassador for Christ. You can extend the peace of Christ to those who are willing. But if not, if they reject it, if they reject it. See, no one in this world rejects just the idea of peace. That's why this must mean something. But if they reject the peace that comes only from the gospel your peace will return to you. It returns to you. There's nothing left for them. There's nothing left for them. It returns to you because you truly are bearing witness to Jesus. You are his ambassador. What you say and what you do are on behalf of King Jesus. Again, Matthew calls, in his account, calls these people worthy, to those that are worthy. And what he means by this, it's not that someone is inherently, innately worthy of Christ's pardon, but it simply is those who see the king and bow down. They acknowledge he is who he says he is. Therefore, they have been counted worthy. They have been counted worthy. We, too, are those who are worthy when we bow ourselves to Jesus as Lord. He gives us his righteousness. He makes us worthy. It's not ours. It is a gift. And these two will be recognized by their willingness to submit to Christ as king. They're considered worthy of the message. And if they reject the message, they are unworthy. There is nothing but wrath left for them. Continuing on in verse 9, Jesus says, Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God. And again, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, and we'll get to that, go into its streets and say, we'll, cast, we'll get to that. But verse 9, Heal the sick in it. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. So the proclamation of peace is following in the words of Christ, but we're also called to follow in the deeds of Christ. Therefore, this includes healing the sick. But a, a careful look at Jesus' ministry reveals the kind of people he healed. Um, it's very fresh for me because I've been reading the Bible cover to cover, very, very slowly, 
um, just a chapter a day, but I've, I'm in Luke, literally I'm in Luke, uh, <laughs> not just preaching in Luke, but I'm actually reading in it too, and it's consistent, it's consistent in those whom he healed, it's this, they first had to be sick, of course, but aren't we all? But more importantly, they were desperately seeking help. They had come to the end of themselves. And they had acknowledged their need for a Savior. These are the people Jesus healed. This acknowledgement of need and their plea for mercy was the substance of their faith. This is why Jesus said often of the people he healed, your faith has made you well. Or put another way, because you have come to the end of yourself and truly sought me, I will heal you. I will heal you. He did not just heal people for the sake of healing. It was to those that cried out to him for mercy because they saw he truly was the son of David and the son of man. We must have the same, the same mission, but also the same concerns about who we help and serve. We are available to help and serve anybody. But many will seek to take advantage of the sheep. Many will seek to use us and to draw a sign from us. Many just want to test us to see if we really are loving and merciful as Christ was loving and merciful. But Jesus himself warns the disciples not to throw your pearls before swine. The church, let me say this again, the church will be abused and taken advantage of. It is inevitable. It's inevitable. And that, too, is the way of Christ. He, too, was abused and taken advantage of, and we see that in his crucifixion. But, but, when it is clear that the one we are intending to love, to serve, to help, is simply seeking a sign or testing us or stealing from us, we need not continue with them. For the harvest is plentiful, and our work must continue. Our work must continue. Many seek to take advantage and coerce the church by saying, aren't you obligated to do this? Isn't this the type of thing your Lord came to do? Yes. But we can't ignore that he healed and served and helped those who were desperate to see him move in their midst. They wanted healing, sure, but they wanted him. They wanted him. And most importantly, when we do, this is from verse 9, when we do heal or serve the needy, we must proclaim the kingdom of God. We must proclaim the kingdom of God. It is to the church's shame that many believe simply doing merciful things absent of kingdom proclamation is somehow faithfulness. Um, I think this is very prevalent in the West. 
Some people are gifted in deeds of mercy, and I'm, I'm not denying that. Some have a particular gift for seeing genuine needs and orchestrating the resources of the church to meet needs. But that cannot be the entirety of our mission. It must be coupled with gospel proclamation. We see it right here in verse 9. Heal the sick in it and say to them, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God has come near to you. All that we are doing is for the sake of Jesus. We love you, but we only love you because Christ has first loved us. There is nothing innate in me. There is nothing innate even in the church to do merciful things outside of Christ for showing mercy to us. And because of that, we love you and we proclaim truth to you. The kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come near. And so, as we declare peace, with it comes deeds, good, righteous deeds, that the world may see Christ through us. But never shall our deeds stand alone outside of our proclamation. And lastly, in this section, judgment. Judgment. But whenever, verse 10, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. This is Jesus' actual instruction to the disciples. Historically, I myself have been very guilty of reading this and thinking of it more indicatively, meaning it's telling me what is going on, but it's not pres- he's not prescribing it, right? It's just a, it's an account of what has happened, but not necessarily what should happen. And I've come to realize I was wrong. I've been wrong for many years regarding this passage. You cannot read the Bible and and not see that the church's mission is to walk in the faith of our forefathers, our biblical forefathers, to proclaim Christ and his kingdom, to bear witness to his righteousness, and to warn, to warn that there is judgment to come. See, I had assumed not that any of that was wrong, but rather everything could happen relationally. It were in a different context. This is a different culture. And I truthfully came to Vermont with much of that in mind. I have engaged many, many lost people with the gospel. I have, I have aimed to be faithful I say that not as a pat on the back, but to to show you where I'm coming from. And yet, my modus operandi, my function, functioning principle, 
was that surely as they see how good of a friend I am or how faithful I am to love them in these ways and how different just I am, the Spirit will move them. And, and those things too are a judgment on them. But Christ wants our words. These people are dying and going to hell and blaspheming his name all along the way. Someone has to say something. And I had to ask the question, why isn't it me? Why isn't it me? I can take nothing for granted. I should not take anything for granted. The kingdom of God has come near to you, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, they do not accept the peace that you're offering in Christ. What do you do? You go into its streets and you say, even the dust of your town that clings, that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. And yet, no, the kingdom has come near. I have preached it. I have been faithful to its message and I'm faithful as a messenger to the one who sent me. The kingdom has come near. That is our calling. That is the mission of the church as witness bearers to Christ and his kingdom. Jesus says it will be more bearable for Sodom on that day than for that town. You all know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. You all know it. It will be more bearable for them. Why? Because though righteous Lot was there and their wickedness tormented him day and night, he was no prophet among them. He was not a herald of righteousness like Noah was. And it was only by mercy that the angel came and saved him and his family, but not his wife, because she wanted to stay. But Sodom had no faithful proclamation in their midst, so they're going to be judged less severely. But that's not an excuse for us to not, to not proclaim. If anything, it ought to stir us because people need to know that there is a real king and he is coming. He's coming. So do we believe that? If he's, if he's truly righteous and he will enact his righteousness and judge sinners, do we see our responsibility in the midst of it all? As we faithfully bear witness to Christ and his kingdom, we will encounter, we will encounter many who reject us. Remember, we are lambs in the midst of wolves. And as they reject us, they're rejecting him who sent us. But the Lord himself tells us, have nothing to do with them anymore. It's like a slap to my face. I like relational missiology. I like having friends, not that I want their approval or need their approval, but thinking that through our friendship, Christ will continue to work in their hearts. And he may, he may. But none of that absolves me or you from the responsibility to proclaim the kingdom. To proclaim the kingdom. 
it will cost you. But hasn't following Jesus already cost you everything? It, it has to. It has to. In wiping the dust off their feet, the disciples were giving a public sign that they have no blood on their hands and that they wish to take none of that town with them. But everything, including the dust in the streets, would be left for destruction. Everything left behind. They refused to take even the dust with them. The destruction to come will be real. And truly, Sodom will have it better than those towns and perhaps the people we interact with on the day of judgment. Remember, Sodom had no, no prophetic witness in its midst. Though he was righteous, Lot failed in that regard. At least we don't see it explicit in the text that he did such a thing. May we not be like him. He, f- he lived stirred about the unrighteousness around him. It pained him day and night. Peter tells us that. It pained him. But he fell short of going and saying, Peace be to you. Repent, for the king is knocking at your door. And because of their ruthlessness, of their sodomy, of their unrighteous deeds, sulfur rained down on them and they were destroyed. And yet, Jesus says, it will be better for them than for those that reject the gospel. And so, truly, to those that reject the message we proclaim, their guilt remains on them. Their guilt remains on them. But we, if we have been faithful, we can wash our hands of it. Not that we don't care for them and don't pray for them continually, but that truly, I have been faithful to Christ and he is sending me on to the next town. So as we conclude... I want to read an excerpt from a book that was incredibly, incredibly uh, formative for me, as I told you earlier in the introduction. Um, the Lord has been stirring in me in a lot of different ways, and um, a lot of it because of what looks like our world going to hell in a handbasket. It always has been, but things just seems so different these days and it seems so much harder to bear witness to Christ and maybe it is maybe it isn't but this book has served as an encouragement to me I'd recommend it to anybody but also help concretize some of the things that seem so distant in the gospels some of the things that Jesus taught And so now I'm I'm more assured than ever that Jesus' charge to the 72 is also his charge to us. But I want to read this for you as our conclusion. Excuse me. Bonhoeffer writes, The moment the messengers enter a house in a city, they get down to business. 
time is valuable and short. Many are still waiting for the good news. Even the first word of greeting they speak, as their Lord does, peace be with this house, is not an empty phrase. Instead, it immediately brings the power of God's peace to those who are worthy. The messenger's proclamation is brief and clear. They proclaim the dawning of the reign of God. They call for repentance and for faith. They come in the authority of Jesus of Nazareth. A command is being delivered and an offer is being made under the highest authorization. That took care of everything. Because everything has the utmost simplicity and clarity and because the matter cannot be postponed, it needs no further preparation. Discussion or advertising. A king is standing outside the door. He can come at any minute. Do you want to bow down and receive him humbly? Or do you want him to destroy and kill you in his wrath? Those who are willing to hear now have heard all there is to say. They will not want to delay the messenger who must go on to the next city. But for those who do not want to hear, the grace period is over. They have pronounced their own judgment. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That is gospel preaching. Is it unmerciful haste? Nothing is more unmerciful than pretending to the people that they still have a lot of time to repent. Nothing is more merciful, nothing is better news than the message to hurry because the kingdom is very near. As his witnesses, we must, we must ask ourselves today, am I willing to go wherever? And as we go, am I willing to preach Christ is king over all? Therefore, repent before he returns to judge the earth. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy of everything we have to offer. The earth and all that it is in it is yours. You are the Lord of the harvest. And I praise you that you've called us to such a place and time as now. I believe that you want to use us, that you are calling us to open our mouths and speak the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe you want to do it. And so I'm praying, here we are. Send us and we will go. Here we are. Lord, please, would you be faithful to meet us in our weakness, meet us in our trembling and in our fear. I pray that you would stir in our hearts now and in the days to come that we would step out in faith, that we would understand the call of discipleship has already cost us everything. Therefore, we will gladly give you all of ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, cut and divide, that we would be exposed before you, hiding nothing, but availing all to you. And I pray now for laborers to be sent out. Lord, send us, send us, and send many to join us. And we pray for wolves to turn into lambs by your grace and to join us in the work. 
Lord, would there be people of peace in our midst? And would you call many who currently live in darkness into your marvelous light? And I pray you do it through us. Lord, would we have the joy of seeing you work in our midst? That we would trust you when you say a laborer is worthy of his wages. So would you meet our every need and would we see fruit from the harvest, please? Teach us to be faithful always. May we not neglect our birthright and, an, and our inheritance. It's in your name I pray and ask all this, Lord Jesus. Amen.